So we're looking at the Gospel of Luke today, and we're looking at Luke chapter 10, uh, verses 25 through 37. This is a story that I think many of you will be familiar with. It's the story of the Good Samaritan. So we go through this passage this morning, and uh, let's, let's pray together before we read one more time. Gracious God, we thank you for the gift of, of worship and to be able to, to join and sing your praise this morning. And um, as Myron said, as we come to your word today, Lord, we do pray that it would fall on, on fertile ground. We pray, pray that you would bless uh, this reading of your holy word, uh, Lord, and that you would apply it to our hearts and minds, and that through it you might form us into the likeness of your Son, Jesus Christ. Uh, We pray, Lord, as always, that we would not leave here uh, unchanged today, uh, but that we would uh, leave here having encountered you by your Holy Spirit. Uh, So speak to us once again this morning, we ask in Jesus' name, amen. Starting at verse 25. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Well, what is written in the law, Jesus replied. How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and love your neighbor as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbor? In reply, Jesus said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. When he was attacked by robbers, they stripped him of his clothes, they beat him, and they went away, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. And then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. Which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in the law replied, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So as we continue preaching through the gospel of Luke, we, as we said last week, reached this point of transition in Luke chapter 9. And we talked about how the first part of Luke, Luke chapters 1 through 9, are really focused on this question of who is Jesus? Who is this man that we are dealing with? And ultimately, in chapter 9, as we saw last week, Jesus turns that question around on the disciples and asking them, but who do you say that I am? And again, that's the big question that we all have to answer for ourselves at some point. Who do you say that Jesus is? When you've been confronted with the gospel or presented with the gospel uh, and all the teachings about Jesus in scripture and that the church teaches, at some point you have to ask that question for yourself. Who do you say that Jesus is? 
And then towards the end of chapter 9, chapter 9, verse 51 of the Gospel of Luke, we're told that Jesus, as the time approached for him to be taken up into heaven, Jesus resolutely set out for Jerusalem. And this is a critical moment. This is a critical moment in the, in the Gospel of Luke, in, in, in Jesus' life and ministry, but also in the focus of the Gospel at this point. And we see it says, as the time approached for Jesus to be taken up to heaven, and this, as the time approached for him to go to the cross, in other words, Jesus resolutely sets out for Jerusalem. And so now his ministry is going from being around the area of Galilee and and the Sea of Galilee, and now he's going to be heading towards Jerusalem, and he knows what is in front of him. And as we do this, as we get to this point in the gospel, the question changes for us from who is Jesus to what does it mean to follow Jesus? What does it mean to follow Jesus? And we're going to be looking at these questions of discipleship as we go through these next chapters of Luke. We don't completely leave the question behind of who is Jesus, but the focus changes a little bit more. What does it look like to be his disciple? What does it look like to follow Jesus? And it's no coincidence that this question changes as Jesus starts to head to Jerusalem. Because ultimately, what it means to be Jesus' disciple is to follow him to the cross. To follow him to the cross. And we skipped over these verses last week in chapter 9, but Jesus says as much in Luke chapters, uh, chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. After telling his disciples that being the Messiah is going to mean that he has to suffer and that he has to be rejected, and eventually it's going to mean death for him, and then the resurrection, Jesus goes on to say this. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross daily and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me will save it. And sometimes people talk about this idea as having a cruciform life or a life that is shaped by the cross. And it doesn't necessarily mean a sacrificial death like the one that Jesus suffered at the cross or that many of the disciples suffered or that many of Jesus' followers throughout the history of the church have suffered, but it does mean that we are to live sacrificial lives, that we are to live lives that are shaped by the cross of Jesus Christ. That is what it means to be his disciple. To follow Jesus means that we follow him to the cross. And so as we look at Jesus heading towards Jerusalem in these next chapters of Luke, that's the question we want to keep in mind. What does it mean to be his disciple? What does it mean to live cruciform lives, lives shaped by the cross? So this is where we find ourselves today in uh, in today's passage, chapter 10, early into this new emphasis in Luke, the parable of the Good Samaritan. And the parable of the Good Samaritan tells us something about what it means to follow Jesus. It tells us something about what it means to be his disciple. Now, this is a very well-known story, the story of the Good Samaritan. In fact, how many people here are familiar with this story on some level? You've heard this before, yes. Okay, we've all, many of us, 
I can say amen, we'll go to communion, right? You, you all know this story well, right? It's one that you've probably heard many times over, especially if you grew up in the church, if you've been going to Sunday school, right? It's one that we teach to our children and to our young people so that this lesson will sink in early and it will just become a part of who they are, this idea about the Good Samaritan. But it's also one of those biblical stories that, that's transcended the boundaries of the church in many ways. It's just become a part of the greater cultural imagination, at least in some cultures, at least in the West, where you can talk about the idea of the Good Samaritan or use the phrase Good Samaritan, and people will know what you mean, whether they've grown up in church or not. There was a show that I used to like to watch uh, when I was in high school and college in the 1990s that had absolutely nothing to do with the Christian faith whatsoever. In fact, was probably very opposed to it in many ways. And they have an episode called The Good Samaritan, right? And you can imagine what happens in that episode because you know this story, right? If you use the phrase Good Samaritan in everyday conversation, people will often know what you're talking about. Even as I'm I'm talking to you now, I imagine everyone has a definition in your head of what a Good Samaritan is. A, A Good Samaritan is someone who sees another person in need, and goes out of their way to help them, right? A good Samaritan is a person who sees someone else in need and goes out of their way to help them. That's a popular definition of it. And, and that's the moral of the story, right? If you see someone in need, then you should help them, even if it, it costs you something, right? We should all be like the good Samaritan. We should follow his example. And this is why we teach it to children. We want to teach them, if you see someone in need, then you should help them, right? This is a good thing to do. And it's, it's hard to argue with this idea. For the most part, people are going to agree with that statement, at least in principle, in some way, right? If you see someone in need and you can help them, then you should. And that's why the story is so popular. Again, it's why we teach it to our kids. There are many ministries that are named after this character. Uh, there's a, a ministry in the United States called Operation Christmas Child that sends a Christmas presents to, to children all over the world who are in need. And it's under an umbrella ministry called Samaritan's Purse, right? It's the same idea. Uh, all of this is that if we see someone in need, then we can help them, then we should. This is what Jesus is teaching us through this parable. And at the end, he even says, go and do likewise. So, this morning, I want to affirm for you that this is true. This is true. This is the moral of the story. Part of following Jesus means that we should help people when we see them in need. And even if it means we have to go out of our way or inconvenience ourselves in some way. Uh, We're taught it here as well as in many other places in the Gospels and in the Bible in general. So we want to hold on to that idea. The story of the Good Samaritan is not less than this meaning, right? It is not less than this meaning. But... If we're willing to dig a little deeper into this passage, then I think we'll find that Jesus is doing something more here than simply instructing us to help other people when we can. Because this passage is so familiar to us, it's easy to assume that we've already got it down. It's like a lot of these passages that we've been learning our whole lives through children's Sunday school and youth group and things like that. We hear it and we think, I know that one. I know what the story is. I know what the moral is. I don't need to really look at that one again. We may not live it out perfectly in our own lives, but we get it. And if we jump too quickly to what we already know about this story and what it's trying to teach us, then we might miss some of the deeper work that Jesus wants to do in our lives through this parable and the invitation that it gives us to self-examination and even to repentance. 
So again, this story, Jesus, in this story, Jesus wants to, to challenge the ways that we look at other people and the ways that we categorize them. And there's much of what he is doing in the Gospel of Luke. So knowing the moral of this story on one level, we, we know it means we should help people when we see them in need. Let's walk through these verses again this morning and see what else there may be in here for us today. In his reflection on this passage, uh, Eugene Peterson suggests that the best way to get at its meaning is to follow the four questions that are asked, that are bounced back and forth between Jesus and this teacher of the law who he's talking with. And so we're going to look at those four questions uh, right now and sort of follow them through the parable. So these are the four questions. The first one is, what must I do to inherit eternal life? That's the first question asked from the teacher to Jesus. And Jesus says, well, what is written in the law? How do you read it? That's the next question. What is written in the law? The third question, who is my neighbor? And then the fourth question, Jesus says, who was the neighbor? Who was the neighbor? So we're going to look at these four different questions as we walk through the passage today. Context matters here, and every time we read scripture, we want to look at the context of the passage. It's important for us to know the details of what's going on that frame this parable. Jesus doesn't just launch into this parable for no reason. It's not this general teaching that he's just giving, right? He's giving it as a response to a specific question that he is getting from this man. It is meant for this person in this conversation. Now, he wants everybody else that is there to hear it as well, and there's a reason that we still read it today. But Jesus is responding to these specific questions. And the first question this man asks is, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What must I do to inherit eternal life? This is a fair question. I think that this is a question that most people wrestle with at some point in their lives. Maybe, maybe some of us are still wondering about this question. What must I do to inherit eternal life? In other words, if there is something on the other side of death, if there is an afterlife of, of some sort, then how do I make sure that I am part of it? How do I know that I am in? What do I need to do to get there? The way that we might ask it today is simply, how do I get to heaven? How do I get to heaven? If all of this is real, then how do I get to heaven? I think a lot of us are asking that question. In fact, I've talked with people even recently asking that question. If there is a heaven, I want to make sure that I get to be there after I die. So what do I have to do to make sure I get there? I think this is a question that that drives a lot of people to do good deeds. I think this is what causes a lot of people to try and be good people. They're trying to meet whatever admission requirements there are to get into heaven, right? I'm going to do whatever it takes to make sure I am in. And this question eventually leads people, hopefully this question eventually leads people to put their faith in Jesus Christ and salvation by grace through him recognizing that there is no other way to get in except through Jesus. We cannot make it on our own. So that's hopefully where people are led to. But it's an honest question that this man is asking. So this is our first question. It's a good one. But we're told at the very beginning of the parable that this man is a teacher of the law. And his question is not purely innocent. We're also told that he is trying to test Jesus. I don't know if you all caught that. But he's asking this question in order to test Jesus. Now, a teacher of the law back then, it's not the way that we would think of a lawyer today. Uh, It's not the way that we would use it now. This is a man who is an expert in the Jewish law. And so he knows 
the things that his religion teaches and requires. He is an expert in these things. He's what we might think of as a, as a theologian today. Uh, he's someone we might even quote in a sermon because he wrote something very articulate and meaningful, right? And so you can be sure that he knows the right answer to his own question. You can be sure. He's asking this question, but he already knows what the right answer is and what Jesus should say. He's testing Jesus to see if his answer holds up. He's still testing Jesus to see who is this guy? Who is this guy? Jesus is smart and he recognizes what's going on and he knows what this teacher of the law is up to. And so he doesn't give him a direct answer. This is often what Jesus does. You may have noticed this, but he doesn't give him a direct answer. In fact, he doesn't really give him an answer at all to his question. He turns it around and he responds with a question of his own. And he basically turns the lawyer's question back on him and says, well, what does the law teach? How do you read it? Now, I just want to say I've tried this strategy on people before when they've asked me difficult questions, and it doesn't always work, right? So just know, but in this case, it does, right? The lawyer takes the bait, the teacher of the law takes the bait, and he gives the right answer. He says, well, this is what the law says. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart and all of your soul and all of your strength, and all of your mind, basically with everything you've got, and love your neighbor as yourself. It's what we often refer to as the greatest commandments, right? And he pulls this answer out of the Old Testament, out of Deuteronomy and Leviticus, right? He knows the law. He knows his stuff, and it pretty much sums everything up. It pretty much sums everything up. Jesus says, great answer. Do this, and you will live. Do this and you will have eternal life. So here's our answer right now. Friends, if you want to have eternal life, if you want to get into heaven, this is all you have to do, right? This is the sum of the law. All you have to do is to love God above anything else in your whole life. So much so that that all of your emotions, all of your goals, all of your thoughts, and all of your actions in life are directed toward him. No problem, right? Okay, Oh, and love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor as yourself. Love your neighbor so much that your neighbor's happiness is just as important to you as your own. And their needs are just as important as yours to the extent that you live as much for your neighbor as you do for yourself. No problem, right? Just do these two things and you can have eternal life. There's a problem. There's a problem. Jesus affirms this man's answer. He is correct. He knows the law. He has the right doctrine. But who can do this? Who can do this? Who can live this way? Who can justify themselves by this standard? You know what, Jesus? I've done these things perfectly. This might be why the lawyer asks the next question, the third question that we have, because he wants to justify himself. In fact, that's what the text tells us. He wants to justify himself. He wants to be able to say that he has done it, that he has fulfilled the law's requirements. He has earned eternal life for himself. And so he asks Jesus the next question, who is my neighbor? Who is my neighbor? He wants limits. He wants boundaries. He wants to know just exactly what it is the law requires so that he can know if he has fulfilled it or not. He wants to be able to tick the box. I have loved my neighbor as myself. But I can only say I've done that if I know who my neighbor is. 
And I have to admit, I can relate to what this man is getting at here. When I was a kid, if my parents said that I needed to eat three more bites before I was done with dinner, I wanted to know just exactly how big those bites needed to be, right? Because I wanted to know if I had fulfilled the law that they were giving me, right? What did I have to do? What exactly constitutes a bite? When I was in school, high school, college, uh, seminary, if I had to write a 10-page paper, I wanted to know just how far down that page I needed to go in order for it to be counted as the 10th page, right? How, How wide can the margins be? What font do I need to use, right? This is what's going to tell me if I have a 10 page paper or not. I want to know what the boundaries are, what the rules are, because then I know if I have fulfilled the rules and the law. So like so many of us, this teacher of the law, he just wants to know if he is doing enough. Am I doing enough? Or at least if Jesus thinks he is doing enough. Now what's interesting is the question that he asked Jesus. He says, it's not about how to love other people. It's not about how I should love my neighbors, what he should actually be doing, but it's about who he should love. Who is my neighbor? Who is actually included in this command? Tell me who my neighbor is so I can focus on them and not worry about anybody else because then I will be fulfilling the law. Now, this man is, of course, a respectable uh, member of Jewish society. And as we've seen throughout the Gospel of Luke, there is this this insider-outsider theme that is at work here. And this teacher of the law, he's asking Jesus to define the boundary for him. Who is in and who is out? Who do I actually have to love and care about in my life? And who don't I? Tell me the answer to these questions, Jesus, and I will get right on it. Who is my neighbor? But again, Jesus is too wise to give the lawyer exactly what he wants. And so he doesn't give him a direct answer to the question. Instead, he tells this famous parable. And he ends it with a final question to him. And this is where it really benefits us to pay attention to what Jesus is saying here. The question is, who is the lawyer supposed to relate to in this parable? This is what Jesus is getting at. This is a question we should ask as we're reading through it. Who is this man supposed to relate to in this parable? Who is he supposed to see himself as? Probably not the robbers, right? We might all agree with that. He's not going to see himself as the robbers, okay? So there are four other options for us as as this man is listening to this parable. There's the traveler, there's the priest, there's the Levite, and there's the Samaritan. Who is this man supposed to see himself as? So the priest and the Levite, we might put them in the same category in some ways. They're both, they're both religious men. They would have known the law of love just recited by our lawyer, how they are supposed to live, and they are supposed to love their neighbor as themselves. But as we know, when they see this man who is in the ditch, who is, has been hurt, uh, whose life is, is slowly slipping away from him, they pass him by when they see him on the side of the road. And so it's easy for us to, to see these two guys as bad guys, to set them up. They're the ones who, who didn't get it. They just walked on by. They're the very people that we would expect to stop and help, but they walk on. And so because they must be too busy or they must be too selfish uh, to do anything. But I would ask the question, in a way, can we really blame them? I mean, maybe we can, but at least we have to look and see what their reasoning might be. 
The road between Jerusalem and Jericho, it was known to be dangerous. It was known that to have robbers, people who might stop and beat you up and take all of your things, like happened to this traveler. Uh, so it would have been very dangerous for them to stop and to help this man. They would have been putting their own lives and well-being at risk to do this, to stop. They might very well be the next victims uh, if they were to stop and help this man. Another issue at play here, because they know the law so well, is that they may have been concerned about violating some of the many purity laws that we see in the Old Testament. If they came into contact with this man's blood, or if he was actually already dead, or if he died while they were trying to help them, then this would be a problem for them. They might be violating the law even by helping him in some way. And so they had their reasons for not stopping, or at least we can imagine that they had their reasons for not stopping, just as we might have our own reasons for not stopping. So they go on their way. I've looked up some different pieces of artwork as I was looking at this. There's some famous ones out there, and I'm sorry I didn't put them up, but in so many of them, you see the the Samaritan helping this man in the ditch, and you also see two people in the distance with their backs turned, walking in their way down the road, right? These are two characters. This is how we remember them. But then along comes the Samaritan, and he stops, and he helps this man at great cost to himself. He finds him bleeding in the ditch, greatly injured, and he takes the time to clean his wounds, to bind up his wounds, and he puts him on his own donkey, and he takes them to the inn, and not only does he just leave him at the inn, but he stays there with him overnight, taking care of him, tending to his wounds, and then the next morning, he gives the innkeeper two days worth of wages and says, take care of him until I return, and when I come back, If there's any cost that you incurred over this, then I will make sure to pay it. This is what the good Samaritan has done. He is the good Samaritan. We are witnessing grace in action here because this is something this man is doing that he does not need to do. But the choice of a Samaritan for this character matters. This is not some uh, random choice on Jesus' part where he just says, oh, and some Samaritan, we'll just throw him into the story too. And this is where he is making his point, where he's forcing the lawyer to self-evaluation. There was no love lost between Jews and Samaritans at this point in history. Jewish people typically looked down on Samaritans. They were a marginalized group in Israel at the time. And they often saw them as being lower than they were. They were a a different ethnic group. Uh, Their religion was seen as being a perversion of true Judaism. They did not worship God in the correct way. And often Jewish people would, would take the long way around Samaria when they were going from uh, wherever they were to Jerusalem. If Samaria was the fastest way to get there, they would still go around in order so they wouldn't even have to pass through the land and interact with them. This is not someone who you would expect to stop and help a Jewish man in a ditch, and certainly not to this extent. And while we read this story and think we are supposed to be the Samaritan, that's the moral of the story, this is the last person that this teacher of the law would have related to in this story, other than the robbers. This is the last person in the story he would have wanted to see himself as. Everything happening in this parable would have been objectionable to him in some way. So here's the point. The most obvious person for this man to relate to, this teacher of the law, the one who's asking Jesus these questions, is to the traveler, the one in the ditch, 
the one who has been mugged and robbed and beat up and left for dead. And while he's an expert in the law, he's not a priest or a Levite, and this is how Jesus wants him to see it, and this is how Jesus wants us to see it too as we read this parable, that you are the person in the ditch. You are the person in the ditch when you read this parable. You are the one who is helpless. You are the one who is half dead. You are the one who is at the mercy of someone else to come and save you. This is who you were supposed to relate to in this story. And if you found yourself in that situation, then what would you want the Samaritan to do for you? If you were in that situation, what would you want the Samaritan to do for you? If you were at the mercy of someone that you had spent your entire life looking down on, despising, insulting, someone who had absolutely no reason to help you out and every reason to pass you by, what would you want them to do for you? The last question in our parable is proved, uh, sorry, the last question in our parable is Jesus asked him is who proved to be the neighbor? Who proved to be the neighbor to the one who was robbed? And the lawyer answers Jesus this, the one who showed mercy. And Jesus says, you go and do likewise. You go and do likewise. Once again, in Luke, Jesus is, is trying to get rid of the boundaries between people to say that there is no one who we can see in this life as not our neighbor. Eugene Peterson, uh, in reflecting on this again, he says the question goes from who is my neighbor to will I be a neighbor? The question goes from who is my neighbor to will I be a neighbor? And I want to leave us with two thoughts today uh, as we wrap up our time together in this passage. And the first is a question. If Jesus was telling you this story personally, who would the Samaritan be in this passage? If Jesus was telling you this question personally, who would the Samaritan be in this passage? Or what type of person? Who is it that you look down on? Who is it that you have little respect for? Who do you see as being outside of your definition of a neighbor? Someone you would say, this person is, is not my neighbor. They're outside of that boundary for me. There may be more than one answer for you. And imagine if you were at this person's mercy, if you were in need and they could help, what would you want them to do for you? Jesus says, go and do it for them. Go and do it for them. This is what it means to love your neighbor as yourself. And by living this way, we point beyond ourselves to God's kingdom. When we live this way, we point beyond ourselves to God's kingdom. And the second thought I want to leave us with is this, and this has to do with grace, because I think that the only way we can actually live the way that Jesus is calling us to here is by receiving his grace or by recognizing that we have been given grace by him. We have to get past the idea of self-justification, the idea that we will start helping people in need and do good deeds in order to prove ourselves to God in that way. This is how we are going to earn our salvation and our eternal life. Jesus says, no, no. We have to see ourselves as the ones lying in the ditch in need of mercy, in need of salvation, and see that this is where Jesus found us and rescued us at great cost to himself. I like what Paul writes in uh, Ephesians chapter two, verses one through five. This is what he has to say. He says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live 
when you followed the ways of this world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. And like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Friends, Jesus saved us freely, not because we deserved it, but because he loves us and because he is rich in mercy. And believing in this truth, believing in grace, is the only way for us to live as good Samaritans. We can love our neighbor because we have been loved. And we can show mercy because we have been shown mercy. It is because of God's grace given to us in Jesus Christ that we can follow his instructions to go and do likewise. Amen. Let us pray. Gracious God, our Heavenly Father, we give you thanks. Uh, we give you thanks for, for Jesus Christ, your Son. We thank you for the grace that he has extended to us in the cross. We thank you that you did not see us dead in our sins, Lord, and pass us by, but that through your Son, you stopped, that you, that you came, and that you bound up our wounds, Lord, that you saved us at great cost and expense to yourself. Lord, we pray that we would never forget that truth and that we would live in light of it so that we might love our neighbors as you have loved us. We ask this all in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen.